You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Warning, this podcast contains spoilers for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. Turtle power. Jason Concepcion. And I'm Rosie Knight. And welcome to X-Ray Vision, the Crooked Media Podcast, where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. In this episode, starting with Strike Watch. Got to keep you updated. Some wild news dropped just before we started recording, and we're happy it dropped before so we can talk about it. In the airlock, it's the the oozy, gooey delights of TMNT (laughs) Mutant Mayhem. It's so good, but don't get milked. Don't don't get get milked, milked, folks. Don't get milked, guys. And in Nerd Out, a question about fly-on-the-wall conversations. Coming up next, Strike Watch. Strike Watch. It was announced today, Monday, August 7th, that uh, the workers at Marvel, the VFX workers at Marvel, about 50 on-set employees, have uh, voted to unionize, joining IATSE, um, the uh, the union that covers uh, some of the cr- the the crews that work on sets, television sets, movie sets, um, and uh, the workers are asking for an election uh, for union positions to be held as early as August twenty first. So this is uh, this is big news now. Of course, there are. There are structural structural obstacles. Um, VFX, not just by Marvel, Disney, but all the other studios, are usually farmed out, not mm-hmm. only to their in-house uh, uh, craftspeople, but to studios around the globe. This, you know, as one, a bid for efficiency, and also, two, to make it harder to unionize. So mm-hmm. uh, there's a long fight uh, that remains ahead of these workers, but this is a a, a development that I think uh, many can and should support. Yeah, I think it's great news. I am really excited for them. It's going to be hard. But as with so many fights, it starts with one thing that can spread. So them being represented by IATSE and potentially having the election to see if that's possible could be a great way to start thinking about how a wider unionization or labor organization effort could happen, even with these separate places, which is kind of what happened with the Video Game Workers Union. It's something that comics is still thinking about. So I think this is great. I think that, as Chris Lee said at Vulture, on the heels of more than a year's worth of damning disclosures around Marvel Studios' systematic overworking and underpayment of visual effects workers, this is to be expected. 
And I'm very happy that Hot Labor Summer continues. This is really wild that this came out on the same day that it was announced that the LA City workers would go on strike Mm -hmm. next Tuesday for 24 hours, which is going to be like the first strike since the 80s. So the strikes keep coming and they don't stop coming. Uh, To that end, we move to South Korea, where actors Mm -hmm. in Netflix originals want better pay, reports the L.A. Times, and the company refuses to meet their union. Uh, Unbelievable. This comes on the heels, of course, of the revelation that the creator of Squid Game, uh, whose story increased the valuation of Netflix by a billion, according to uh, some analysts, uh, received... In recompense for that, no residuals, a salary, but virtually no other ability to share in the uh, massive profits that his story generated for Netflix. Um, And of course, you know, Netflix is often talked about as the streamer that's best positioned for the current labor actions that are taking place, right? They, they mm-hmm. have a lot of reality TV. They have like this vast international programming of, uh, of programming that comes from international, that it's already banked, that's like comes from uh, other places around the world, including uh, a heavy reliance on the uh, on the uh, stories that come out of uh, South Korea, uh, and so this uh, would seem to put pressure on that um, and a welcome development as well. Yeah, I think it's absolutely welcome. I think this is great. It's the the Korea Broadcasting Actors Union. Mm-hmm. And I just think this is a great, terrible, but very prime example of how Netflix views international programming yes. and how they obviously thought this was a space where they could As a resource to be exploited. Even, yeah, yeah, a resource to be exploited. I mean, the Squid Game thing was so shocking because it was an original idea created by... Huang Dong-hyuk. And yet when he signed the deal to make it, Netflix took all of the IP in a move that is very similar to what we've seen in the comic book industry, but is a lot rarer in standard traditional publishing or Hollywood. But Netflix obviously, like you so beautifully put it, Jason, saw this as a resource to be exploited and mined rather than a space to support creators. And the fact that Netflix is not getting back to the national Broadcasting Actors Union shows a lack of respect, in my opinion, for the work that is being done. But I would very much like to see some kind of labor organization happening in a way that could impact the way that Netflix is using this programming, not only as a way to break the strike or not be affected by it, which is what they're doing, but also as a way to just let them know, like, this content is made by people. It's not content creators, it's artists, it's writers, it's actors, it's directors, it's storytellers, it's production designers, it's set dressers, it's all these people. That is always getting left behind in this era of like content and content creators. So I just think any movement like this is is very positive. And I hope that Netflix makes the correct decision here. But let's be real, in this summer, none of these execs are making the correct decision. So I'm not feeling hopeful. (laughs) <laughs> That's correct. Well, I mean, you know, like, I mean, this is a thing. I, I'm not going to dwell on this too long. But this is a this is a structural issue. It's this is uh-huh. not this is not um, something that falls at the feet of any of the individual CEOs who run this con- these, these companies. This is an issue about how the economics 
of the space work uh, and tech, which Netflix is a tech company essentially, has long been uh, hostile to unionization mm-hmm. efforts, uh, and you know that will that will only continue. So uh, we watch this with interest. Up next, TMNT Mutant Mayhem. stepping out of the airlock and into the beautiful, aromatic, and juicy sewers of New York City for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem, which opened last weekend and is wonderful. Delightful. Wonderful. 10 out of 10. Lovely. Good stuff. Um, I, I got to say, before we get into the movie, mm-hmm. who would have... 15 years ago, 18 years ago, whatever it is, who would have picked uh, Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg to be like the powerhouses that emerge from Freaks and Geeks? Yeah, exactly. And not just that, but also the powerhouses who emerge from Freaks and Geeks to essentially adapt unadaptable cult comics. And and like multi, like, like all around multi-layered threats. Obviously, Rogan yeah. in front of the camera, behind the camera, writing, producing, Goldberg writing, producing, and, and uh, et cetera. But it's, the track record at this point is really, really amazing. And it continues again with the wonderful uh, Teenage Mutant yeah. Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem, uh, that has their imprint on it with with uh, help, script writing help from uh, Dan Hernandez and Benji Samnan and, and uh, director Jeff Rowe. Um, but just really, really fantastic, uh, absolutely distills the what's kind of like magical about the Teenage uh-huh, Ninja Turtles uh-huh. for a new generation. And the listen, the, the animation style, the action is so unique. I wouldn't even know how to describe it. Um, yeah. How would you describe it? I think it it kind of swerves between like looking like somebody's sketches that you would see yeah, in the classroom a next to you with kind like, of look. Yeah, and then also a kind of stop motion vibe. I think one of the things that they did that was the coolest is obviously this is a a post Spider Verse movie as we call them, or, or is influenced by Spider Verse. But I will say I think this is one of the first movies to come out of this wave of post-Spider-Verse movies, that it understands where its strengths are. So it doesn't try yeah. to ape Spider-Verse by doing like 20 different types of animation, which is obviously the, the part and parcel of what makes those movies so brilliant. Instead, they found one really unique animation style and stuck with it. And it feels so enjoyable and it feels raw, but it's entertaining. There's this very old school comics thing to it where... All of the characters, apart from April O'Neil, who I love, played by yes. the incredible Ayoada Berry, who we just love so much. But like all of the characters apart from April and the turtles are grotesque. The human characters are <laughs> grotesque. The mutant characters are grotesque. That's very old school. That's very Silver Age superhero comics. Like yeah. these characters are monsters. They're they're scary. They're weird. But then I love that at the center you have this kind of pure core group of the, obviously the four tiles and then you have April who were just really cool and I wrote this in my letterbox review but one of the things that I really found quite profound about this movie is there's a picture I have of me when I was like three years old wearing a nappy holding like a Raphael 
Mm. plush. And I've loved the turtles for that long. Same. I loved them when they were cartoons. I loved them when they were Playmates toys. I loved the black and white comics, which when you discover them when you're old enough, feel like a revelation compared to what the sh- what they became on the cartoons. I, I followed them throughout my life. I love Pia Laird and Kevin Eastman. Like Those are like icons to me of comic book creation. I, I love the original Jim Henson suit movies. Like I've lived through the Michael Bay era. Like I've seen so many stories with them. And to be here as like a 35-year-old and sitting in that theater and able to enjoy the movie and watch the movie and love the movie and feel like they're like my sweet, annoying cousins who I want to <laughs> protect. That is like an incredible feeling to grow up with characters and outgrow them but still want to spend time with them and this really does a great job of putting across the teenage aspect of the tmnt x-ray vision will be back you like to watch new stuff right well go to hulu and see what's new because hulu has new stuff all the time like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And we're back. Yeah, the teenage aspect of the Turtles is front and center. And, you know, uh, Goldberg and Seth Rogen have been... Uh, pretty outspoken about that being the aspect of these characters that they really want to highlight, that they really wanted to uh, uh, drill down on. I think they did it wonderfully. You know, there's this wonderful moment where uh, the turtles are just coming home after kind of like lingering on the edge of like this outdoor uh, uh, movie showing at uh, Brooklyn Bridge Park and they come home and uh, dad is kind of like castigating them for like, where have you been? And it's this wonderful, like, so uh, uh, Jackie Chan plays Splinter. Incredible casting, by the way. Incredible casting. And it creates this layer of like, they really resonated like as the, as the child of immigrants of like, to have Mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, like the immigrant parent who's like, don't, what are you doing? Don't go out. Don't do this. Like, you know, you're going to be influenced in bad ways. And Splinter's version of that is humans want to kill you. They want to milk you. uh, (laughs) They want to trap you in a lab somewhere and do experiments on you. All all of which is absolutely fair. Um, And true, it turns out. And true. And, uh, but after that, you know, after they absorb this, this speech from Splinter, they like go to their rooms and they're just like scrolling their phones and like talking Mm -hmm. about different things that they see on their phones roasting that each other that they would if they, do like, if they could, could go out uh and it was just really really wonderful like it it's um at, same as you i'm a longtime turtle fan i remember one of my classmates you're too like did this happen when you were in school like kids would bring for absolutely no reason abs- uh, other than to like flex 
in front of the other kids. Like kids would just like bring comics and toys yep. to class yep. Yep. when like oh, absolutely baby. you just mm-hmm. know that if a teacher sees that, like it's going to take it. Why, why is that here? But I, uh, I remember one of my classmates brought in the, um, the black and white Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Eastman and Laird book. And now I don't know if it was a first printing or a second printing or what issue. I, I don't remember what issue it was, but I remember being knocked out by, mm-hmm. um, by the art. It must have been the first issue because I remember there being, I remember the panel that really got me was like one when you couldn't really tell them apart. It must, I think it was. Yeah. No, no, they, you can't tell them apart. It's black and white. They all wear masks. You can't really tell. I think it was maybe Raph who said this, but like it's a panel, they're fighting and uh, one of the, and the, and the narration panel is like, and we bleed, you know, and Uh they have these little, like, uh, they have these little scratches like all over their shells and over, all over their skin. And I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. And I went to the comic book store, I couldn't find it. And then eventually I found it. Um, And then it was definitely weird. So, like, I'm of that era where when the cartoon really started hitting, I was like, well, this is, like, so different than the than the black and white version. Mm-hmm. But it's wonderful how I, I think one of the great things about Mutant Mayhem is it really combines all of that stuff. Yep. Like, the cool martial arts. everything. Yeah, the cool martial arts action of, like, the Eastman and Laird uh, pre-colorized run mm-hmm. and, like— the cowabunga pizza fun of yeah, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles of the 90s video game era. And it distills all of that into something that is really, like, truly something of its own. I had a great time. I thought it was amazing. And I think you bring up a great point. Like, I wrote a piece of IGN that was kind of explaining about like a this this will have a this will be a spoiler so like don't listen if you haven't seen it well actually you can listen because it's not actually in the movie it's just something i know because i've read the comics but there is a the maya rudolph character cynthia utrom she she's almost certainly crang you can do a we were right (laughs) right. in two years when they announce it because the utrom but the utroms are an alien race that are in like the second issue of the black and white comics right and then all your mutant mayhem characters the actual mutants uh ray fillet aka man ray you know yeah. genghis from voiced by Those uh, are from, post malone yeah oh my gosh he was so good <laughs> he ray was very fillet. funny ray like, fillet. Ooh, the the jason Mighty. derulo it's the austin it's post malone <laughs> doing a jason derulo, jason derulo. <laughs> so good and like you know um introducing paul rudd as mondo gecko you know yeah like, the mighty mu animals that was a range of Playmates toys when they yeah. were really just selling so many. So it really does combine all of the different aspects that make the turtles great. You have April O'Neil and she's black, which uh, in uh, the original Black and White's comics, she was black. Yeah. So even that is People like forget going this. back. They forget <laughs> this. And you know, they and that goes back to the original era of the comics. I feel like they did such a brilliant job making it accessible. You know, my nephew loved it. My 10-year-old nephew, now he's going back and yeah. he's watching Rise of the Ninja Turtles. He's watching the old cartoons. <laughs> he's watching all of it, you know. I love that it basically, once again, created an accessible jumping on point for kids because this is one of the most consistent kids franchises Yes, that has kind of always perennially been there. And I think that's why... It, you know, they were they were tracking it. They were like, oh, it's going to make like 25 million or something. But it ended up being closer, I think. Let's find the final numbers. I'm 
I think it was like it was like forty five or fifty and on a budget of seventy yeah. million, which is so we're gonna get there. Like clearly, this is gonna be a money making movie, and I think word of exactly. mouth clearly it's will build. Just very delightful, and I love to see it, and I'm very happy. Yeah, forty three million over five days, and it's gonna have long, long legs. Like this is a movie that opened well, and it's gonna be playing all the way into the fall. It makes me very happy. I I love the idea that the, these kids are gonna be able to you know, find these characters that we love. And I also love, this is the first one where you actually have like, well, you know, the original Jim Henson uh, suit 90s, like live action movie. Yes. Some of the people who played them were teenagers who voiced them or were in the suits. But this is like kids. Mika Abbey, who plays Donatello, yeah. he is a baby. When I see him in the interviews, I am <laughs> like, oh, my sweet child. And, you know, Shimon Brown Jr. is Michelangelo. Amazing. Nicholas Cantu, the only Leonardo I respect. I am a Leonardo hater. He is a snitch in this movie, but he learns his ways and <laughs> oh, he has a good on. character. <laughs> Brandy Noon as Raphael, who is my all-time favorite. I'm a Raphael stan. That's my, f of the four humors of the turtles, I am a Raphael. And like, I just, I loved it so much. And you know what else that they understood that I think a lot of the modern turtle yeah. stuff hasn't understood? And this comes back to what you're saying. In the comics, you couldn't tell them apart, right? Because they didn't have the different color bandanas yeah. in the original comics. And then when they did, they had all red bandanas. It was all about personality. Yeah. And I think in the contemporary stuff, me and Nick talk about this a lot, like it became about how do they look different? What gadgets do they have? Like, you need to know the weapons. Now, that's all still true, and they actually do that in a really fun way here, but the personalities are so defined. Like, yeah. you can watch so that, defined. and every, every so, kid is going to have a favorite. Who was your... You uh, you mentioned it, but, it, but expound as to why your turtle was your turtle. <laughs> okay, so my turtle, I think it's one... When I was a kid, I definitely had that tendency of, like, thinking, like, the darker characters were like cool. Like <laughs> yeah, Sith. I think we all. So, I think like, that's a very yeah, that's a like very preteen team. Like, yeah, and 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 Raph was like the tough guy, and he was really complex, and he was kind of sad and emo. But he, yeah. and you know, I will say, out of all the turtles, I feel like his representation in this movie is is slightly streamlined, whereas I feel like the others get a really great kind of new elements. But you know what? It's time he's growing. He's still he's just a chunky little boy who's angry. But you know what? I think it really was, and this is so <laughs> dumb, but this is like so defining in my life. I always remember, like in the I, I used to love all kinds of weird old movies and like I, I loved like Cary Grant movies when I was a little kid and I, I love PI movies. And I always remember Raphael in the movie wearing like the detective jacket and the hat. Yeah. And that to me is just one of the coolest yeah. visuals. I literally have a reference to that in the new graphic novel I'm writing. Him, the thing, Robocop does it when yeah. he's like first gets transformed. There's something about that. And I think that for me really cemented it. But I mean, then again, I literally have that picture. I'll try and find a link to put it in the show notes because it's really funny. I have that picture of me when I was like a baby and I had Raph. So I don't know. I guess yeah. it was just maybe it was because he was red. You know, when it you're could, a kid, it's could, very that could be, Yeah, it could be that as but, well. But it's always throughout my life. That's never changed. In the new movie, I would say Donnie's probably my favorite character. Yeah. I loved him, but I'm still a Raph girl. Who's your turtle? Donatello is my favorite turtle yeah. uh, for various reasons. One, I, you know, I, you were mentioning what you gravitated to um, at that stage of your comics reading life. I definitely went, I was like, what is the thing that, is not popular, and that's what I like. And so, like, Donatello, I mean, they make a joke about it in the movie. He just has yeah. a stick, you know? <laughs> 
And I was so I was like, that's cool. That's like except that's accessible. Like I can go unscrew yeah. the head off the broom right now uh, and have the weapon that Donatello has. Plus, mm-hmm. he was that's like a the great more cool, actually. Yeah. And like so I can just be Donatello right now if I just like unscrew the broom head. And mm-hmm. then he was he was the more uh like he was very adept at technology. He was kind of like the sneakier one and the quieter one also. Like everybody else was much louder than him. But when he did speak, it was like it seemed to have some weight to it. And then he beat – he was the one – I forget which issue it is. I think it's the first issue. He's the guy who beats Shredder. Like he beats Shredder uh-huh, at the end uh-huh. of the fight. And so I was like, Donatello, that's my guy. I liked, I played him in the video game. He had the longer reach. Like you could hit the guys from across the, you know, further across the screen because it's mm-hmm. a longer stick. Uh, and so Donatello, that's my guy. And I thought yeah. he was uh, wonderful in the movie. So good in this. Also, I will say, I feel like you that's got to be the most fulfilling turtle to love because he definitely was like the lesser loved one before but yeah. i feel like over the years everyone who has created a turtles show or a turtles movie they loved donatello and then you get to this point where i feel like for me he was absolutely like the standout of the movie <laughs> that must be a fulfilling journey as a fan to just see this character you love get better and better and as we learned he uh, i believe it is it's Donatello who's wearing the JoJo's Bizarre Adventure hoodie when they go into <laughs> yeah, school. Yeah. So there is like, this is a movie full of pop culture references, but I actually found it quite charming. I, it didn't overwhelm me. I enjoyed I enjoyed the kind of nods and the fact they're talking about Endgame. Like, sure, Endgame <laughs> no, exists oh in God. that universe. Like, okay. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that <laughs> got huge laughs in the theater because oh, yeah, that was, same. that particular joke was one that like, all the adults and all their kids could enjoy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, and also it was so it, funny. It, it it's one of those fun things. I think like the best references, right? They either make you go like, "Oh, that's cool," or they open up your mind to like, as storytellers, as people who watch this stuff, as people who write theories, fans, whatever. They open your mind to like, okay, so if the Avengers exists in this universe, yeah, know, what right? does that mean to the universe? Yeah. Like, what does it mean? And obviously, also you get the. The moment with uh, Ferris Bueller's day off when they're like watching it and all they want to do is like go to high school so they can take over a parade. I love it when you learn that something, I love the implication essentially that this is our world. Yeah. I think that's really powerful and I think it's magical for kids. Uh, teen- Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem, in theaters now. Up next, more turtle stuff with an omnibus about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
Welcome to another chapter of The Omnibus, um, where we're talking about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and their origin and their deeper origin uh, today. Popular art, as we have talked about on this podcast quite often, is a product of a dialogue between creativity and commerce. And, you know, there are numerous examples of this. But I think mm-hmm. that when you hear about the history of the Teenage Ninja Turtles, uh, you'll come to realize, as I have, that the Turtles, now in their fourth decade of pizza-stained martial arts action existence, are perhaps one of the most unique products of this dialogue between commerce and creativity. Created in 1983 by comics fans Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, uh, the Turtles, in the best tradition of fan-created art, were a barely-veiled ode to some of the most popular comics tropes of their day. Uh, You've heard Rosie talk about this lots of times. Uh, From the X-Men came the word mutants. Mutants were big, and therefore, uh, let's do something with mutants, Eastman and Laird thought. You know what else was big? Uh, Teenagers are big at this time. The uh, Teen Titans... Uh, a solo title had launched in 1980, and the, the New Mutants, the uh, offshoot of the X-Men team, the teen team of of young mutants uh, over at the Xavier's Academy, just going into the field on their own, had launched contemporaneously with uh, Eastman and Laird starting to create these uh, characters. Uh, Frank Miller's pioneering run on Daredevil was mined extensively. The ninja villains, the hand <laughs> became the turtle's antagonist, the foot. Uh, Miller and artist Klaus Jansen's gritty, blood-drenched martial arts tone mm-hmm. was brought over basically intact in, in that early black and white run. Um, and then, you know, for the kind of highbrow stuff, uh, they turned to the Italian Renaissance with the artists Leonardo, Donatello, Raffaella, and Michelangelo, who gave our heroes their name. In 1984, using a family loan and uh, some cash from a, a tax return, Eastman and Laird printed 3,000 copies of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, number one, under their own Mirage Comics banner, founded in their living room. Uh, and with a, you know, a, a sh- turtle shell and a prayer, they bought an ad in the Comics Buyer's Guide. Then really the Bible of of how to get comics and how to see what comics were out there in the marketplace. Uh, And that's how Eastman and Laird entered the then kind of nascent direct market uh, of of comics publishing by which uh, local comic shops would kind of like cut out the uh, middle distributors to buy direct from the publishers, in this case, Mirage uh, and Eastman and Laird. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, number one, sold out, all 3,000 issues gone. Uh, A 6,000-issue reprint followed. It sold out as well. From this, Eastman and Laird pocketed a tidy $200 profit, not bad for, uh, you know, early 80s money. Uh, So realizing that their little lark of a small business project was resonating, perhaps uh, indicating a a deeper vein of interest in these characters, uh, Eastman and Laird went back to the literal drawing board. And about a year later, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles number two went to print. Now, uh, this by this time, the characters were a grassroots sensation. And of course, retailers seeing that uh, thought, well, listen, you can't just send us number two when number one is sold out. You also have to reprint number one, right? And so they did that and thus began a new run of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And All the issues sold regularly into the five and occasionally six figures, which are just 
incredibly huge numbers mm-hmm. for an indie. Like huge numbers for an indie. Like if you're Still talking six figures. Still a big deal figures, if it happens now. A big deal if it absolutely a huge deal if it happened now. And some of their issues um, like were flirting with numbers that like you would get at the big two, mm-hmm. like at some of their medium range books. Like this was huge, huge stuff. And seeing this um, in 1986, Playmates Toys came calling a subsidiary of Hong Kong based Playmates Holdings. Uh, uh, the company had a plan to turn the turtles into a line of merch appealing to kids. And uh, mm-hmm. so their plan First was to seed the marketplace with an animated television show that would run in various markets, you know, kind of a limited run television show that would kind of like build up the hunger amongst their uh, their uh, targeted fan base for all things Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, But of course, before they did that, you know, some of the stuff, some of the things in the black and white (laughs) original run needed to change Uh, from day one. Uh, Eastman said in an interview with the Comics Journal from 1998, the first meetings at Playmates, they wanted changes. The early issues had violence, but not graphic violence. He continues, Playmates said our specific audience is four to eight-year-olds. So you do the math (laughs) on that, right? Uh, A a lot of stuff needed to change. A lot of the uh, violence needed to be toned down. Some of the language, which was never really that explicit in the original Mm -hmm. run, but like did kind of like... uh, I guess, kind of dip a toe into like explicit language. Some of that needed to be dialed down. And of course, uh, the Turtles had by this time already transitioned to color, as Rosie mentioned, all red bandanas. Uh, But as we start to enter the animated space, certainly things are going to need to change more significantly. And here is where the Playmates marketing team really made their imprint uh, 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 and really let their influence be felt. And this is where that conversation between art and commerce really becomes mm-hmm. a very even, even-sided conversation. So um, the Playmates marketing team are the reason that we have differently colored masks mm-hmm. for the turtles, for instance, to in order to tell them apart. They are the source of any number of catchphrases, iconic catchphrases from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, animated series, including Turtle Power. And of course, the legendary Cowabunga. Now, the latter uh, Cowabunga was the focus of a $5 million lawsuit by Buffalo Bob Smith, the host of the Howdy Doody show, which ran from 1947 to 1960. Uh, Buffalo Bob claimed that, uh, hey, uh, the turtles stole Cowabunga, which we used on the Howdy Doody program back mm-hmm. in the <laughs> back in the 40s. Sure. Uh, and how dare you, sir? Uh, uh, Eastman and Laird decided that, you know what, this is not worth the trouble. And they eventually settled for $50,000 on the $5 million. Oh, also, uh, pizza came from Playmates. Can you imagine? Yeah. Like, was, also, like, what more iconic thing could come out? Can you dude. associate with the turtles and pizza? And that was part of uh, uh, the uh, contributions from the Playmates execs. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about this when I was writing my Cynthia Utron piece at IGN because David Wise, who has spoken a lot about how yeah. involved he was with this, he actually created Krang, who I would say is probably the <laughs> most well-known. Mr. Pizza himself. Ninja, yeah, the <laughs> most well-known Ninja Turtles Villain probably is Krang, and and that didn't come. He didn't come from the comics. He was influenced by the Utrom's these kind of brain 
looking aliens. But even that, when I was like kind of revisiting it, it is such a unique space in this cultural idea of like commerce. And also, this is why Turtles became so popular. It was already a comic shop here. This is why. But like, this is how kids found out about it. This is how it became a global phenomenon. And this is how many, many years later, Peter Laird would sell the Ninja Turtles to Nickelodeon for millions. We'll get to that. But yes, we'll get to that. I will say, not yeah. enough money. No, not enough money. We not en- he that. did not get enough money. Um, okay, so uh, the overall softening of the Turtles' aesthetic and various story elements uh, was, a, f- you know, as you can see from the fact that we're talking about the Turtles in the Year of Our Lord 2023, extremely lucrative, resulted mm-hmm. in numerous television programs, various spin-offs of those programs, several waves of toy crazes, multiple video games, of course, the movies, uh, various comics runs across three or four different comics companies. Um, but the changes didn't necessarily go down smoothly with the creative team. Uh, Kevin uh, Eastman said in 1998 with the Comics Journal, quote, it probably affected Pete more than it did me. He was really upset about it. And even today, he's very much of a purist as far as the turtles Mm -hmm. go. Um, But it was something we both agreed to. We'd have long, long talks and ultimately say, we can live with this. Uh, You know, all this stuff was done in 1986 in the early part of 1987 while developing the toys and the cartoons. Even through that whole period, we never really believed that it was going to happen. And, of course, it did happen and they became uh, very, very rich. And uh, and here we are now. Rosie mentioned it. Um, In uh, 2000, Eastman sold his stake in the Turtles to Laird, who – you know, mm-hmm. uh, Eastman's telling was kind of the more passionate and originalist of the creatives. Like the purest. Yes. Now, the, uh, uh, Laird then turned around and sold the rights to Viacom. And, of course, uh, you know, you can follow the kind of corporate restructuring and machinations that follow here. But through Viacom, the, uh, the, the property eventually landed at Nickelodeon, which is how Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem comes to us today. Yeah, and 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 Peter Led sold it in two thousand and nine for sixty million dollars. Now I understand that to a not normal enough. person, not enough. Yeah, not a, enough. a normal person, that is a lot of money. That's a life changing amount of money. But I am saying, I'm talking if if you're selling Star Wars or Marvel for like four billion, yeah, right now it's not that I'm level. Saying, it's not that level. But but I'm talking. I'm saying five hundred mil. I'm saying I'm, like I half a bill can... minimum. The amount of money that Nickelodeon has made off these off the live action movies that they've done yes. since then, off this movie, like it was not enough. But I love, I love that Peter did it in a pure way. And now you know Kevin is doing the last Ronin. Yeah. which was a huge success for IDW. And that was based on an idea him and Peter had. Um, there was a great documentary made about the Ninja Turtles. I believe it is called Turtle Power, the definitive history of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's now on Paramount+. Plus. Turtles on a half gel. Turtle Power. Uh, and that <laughs> has a really great arc about their journey as friends, as mm. collaborators. The way they broke people off at Mirage Comics in the 80s and 90s are the creators like Stan Sakai. They would bring the characters that they created, like Usagi Yojimbo, and they would put them into toy production so their friends could make money. And there's a really great arc about Peter and Kevin, and they even have a kind of reunion between the two mm. of them there that kind of led on to where we are now. So, yeah. Also, Jason, I want to hear about that the reasons that you think 
they resonated? Because you have some great thoughts here about like anthropomorphic kind of storytelling well, through the, the ages. Well, that's the question, isn't it? Right? Like, why? Why was it? Why the turtles? What? It, what? What happened? And I'll get to that. But I think one of the things that's interesting to me about the turtles, um, on an intellectual level, is how mm-hmm. they are part of this kind of fundamental human. By human, I mean like Homo sapien, like mm-hmm. uh, us as a species, uh, storytelling, uh, kind of storytelling adaptation that we have, uh, and how they are part of this tradition of anthropomorphism in mm-hmm. human creativity. Um, anthropomorphism, which is the technique of kind of combining animals or objects mm-hmm. with human characteristics is, of course, a staple of popular culture, you know, like point at any Disney movie, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and in particular, this is a feature of content that is aimed at kids throughout history, like literally going back into the the far reaches of prehistory even. Um, the Lowenmensch figurine, the so-called Lion Men of Holstein Stadel, is an ivory sculpture of a person with a lion's head. And it's the earliest example of anthropomorphism and is dated anywhere from 35,000 to 41,000 years old. And when you really think about like what an, what an incredible uh, example of like cognitive flexibility this is, we see an animal. We imagine ourselves as that animal in order to understand what it's doing. This is really something that is unique to uh, people, archaeologist mm-hmm. uh, Stephen Mithen, in a really wonderfully catty response to critics <laughs> in a December 1996 issue of the Journal of Royal Anthropological Institute, noted that, quote, anthropomorphic thinking does appear to be an effective means for predicting animal behavior. In other words, uh, his idea mm-hmm. was that, you know, Stone Age hunters, in order to figure out the migrations of say, herds of ibex or something like that, would wonder, if I was an ibex, what would I do? What would I do? Where would I go? Where would I sleep? And through this process, eventually found success in hunting ibex. In that same journal, Mithin theorized the reason for uh, children's interest in anthropomorphism Mm. throughout history is perhaps because... um, Quote, from birth, they are surrounded by material artifacts that are intentionally designed to cause cognitive fluidity. We don't, we kind of like overlook this about the way we were raised as kids and the way we interact with kids, about how confusing, when you really think about it, you know, you give a kid a doll that is Mm -hmm. a tiger, right? That is the picture of a tiger or the picture of a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, right? And it's not a turtle, but you expect them to understand that it is not <laughs> what it is, but it's something yep. else, right? This is like we are intentionally confusing kids so mm-hmm. that their minds become more fluid. And I think what this uh, what this all brings me to is, I think for me, the reason that the that the turtles resonate, and and what I think was so wonderful for me about this movie was uh, the way the turtles uh, kind of activate empathy, particularly for kids, right? Like you're a kid, mm-hmm. um, you're concerned. You know, it's hard now as an adult to kind of like reach back and and get into contact with like what a day-to-day 
like wilderness going to school yeah. was as a kid and it's like everything feels like life or death and it's like do people like me and if they don't like me or make fun of me everything's going to fall apart and like you're living minute to minute and day to day and one of the cool things about the turtles is it it empowers kids empathy right you see yourself mm -hmm. as these special uh, martial arts turtles who are also outcasts and what do they want they just mm -hmm. want to be like every other kid every other normal kid but of course they can't be because they're turtles but because they are anthropomorphic turtles it allows <laughs> uh, kids to interact with their empathy in a way that protects them from kind of like the more occasionally troubling aspects of empathy which is the questions that arise from uh, you know, uh, your own relationship with mm. the, the with your other classmates or, uh, let's say, you know, bullying. Uh, where does one stand in a power dynamic between a bully and and the and the target of the bully? How or how am I being a bully to someone else? All of these mm -hmm. kind of questions. How do how does how does empathy work? If someone looks different than me or believes something different mm. than me, right? All of these questions are really complex and can uh, can get really naughty and make you question a lot of things about the way you were brought up and your experiences. But when you have anthropomorphic turtles, <laughs> all of a sudden all of that stuff becomes uh, much easier to play with and much more uh, relatable and much easier to grab a hold of, right? Mm -hmm. um, the outsiderness. The, the need to belong, the, the desire to be special, but also to be like everybody else, um, all of that the turtles give to us by the fact that they are turtles with mm -hmm. the personalities of people. Yeah. It's, what do you think? Why I, do you think the turtles resonate? I love that so much. I mean, it's hard to top, but I would just say, I think you're absolutely right. I also think they're essentially like a gateway to other analogous storytelling. That's so correct. like when you're a kid, the turtle aspect of it all makes it less terrifying to consider these ideas of empathy. They make it less obviously analogous, less obviously about you and your experiences. And they also give you a, a hero wish fulfillment. Yeah, yes. I might be an outcast, but I can do something good. And what I love is then, you know, you go from reading the turtles or watching the turtles on TV and then you see the X-Men. And that yeah. becomes more obviously about the human struggle, yes. but you still have that same analogous storytelling that comes from science fiction traditions, that comes from the idea of using stories for the power that they can impart. So, I mean, I, I cannot top what you said because I absolutely love that theory and I think you're so right. But I think one of the coolest things and the reason that they've resonated for so long is these are almost a starter set of characters and a starter set of tropes and a starter set of stories that will inevitably lead to other art forms and nice. other comic book storytelling. Yeah. And I think that's well really cool. And I think the fact that both of us watched it when we were kids and are here now talking yeah. about this stuff every week is great proof of that. Like two people from two different sides of the world and the turtles was still one of those first things that got us into this space where we found these stories about characters that we wanted to know more about, that we wanted to care about, and that taught us lessons as we went into our life. I think it's lovely. Turtle power. Up next, Nerd Out. In today's Nerd Out, 
where you tell us what you love and why, a theory you're excited to share, or a quick question we can answer. Chris asks a fly on the wall query. Now, Chris, I love this because you are big thinking here. This is almost existential, and, and I adore this. Hi, Rosie and Jason. I love the podcast, even though I know little about the many deep dives that you two take, but that's precisely why I love listening. I've always found so much enjoyment being a fly on the wall, listening to two experts discuss something. The more specific, the better. Like I have two friends who build elevators for a living. Even (laughs) though the nuances of their discussions are well over my head, I find it fascinating. That's how I often feel when listening to certain parts of X-ray vision. So my question for the two of you, what specific topic would you enjoy just silently listening to? As a fly on the wall. This is such an epic question. I, you know, you go first because I have, I'll just go through my YouTube history and I'll like, mm-hmm. which is basically what I use it for. Um, but what, what's, what would the topic be for you? For me as a fly on the wall, it's very hard to imagine it being something outside of the sphere of what I love. So for example, things that I listen to and love to watch that are not in my sphere of knowledge. I watch a lot of NHK, which is like the national Japanese Mm -hmm. broadcast channel, and they have incredible episodes of a show called Trails to Oishi, where it's basically just like, how do you pickle a radish? Like, I love stuff (laughs) like that. Like, I want to know the exact way to ferment the perfect piece of soybean. Like, I do love that kind of stuff. But if I was to be a fly on the wall, I would be like flying back into comics history i just want to be a fly on the wall like listening to jack kirby coming into the marvel office Mm. when he finds like stanley crying because they're going to shut down the office and he's like don't worry kid i got this or like i want to be in the room where like todd and jim lee and rob liefeld and, and all the crew are like talking about founding image like i think for me it would be getting to hear and experience like these unbelievable historical moments that you sort of can't really even conceive because in the moment nobody knew they would be important that to me would if i was truly a fly on the wall those would be the things i'd want to revisit some of those incredible conversations and historical moments that no one kind of knew would become that at the time Mm. yeah for me it's always people in some sort of creative sphere talking about how the nuts and bolts of how they mm. do the stuff that they do. For instance, now I'm going through my YouTube history. I uh, recently went through <laughs> a uh, a late night. I, write, I do a lot of writing at night. Uh, a late night like ABBA phase. What? Yeah, baby. <laughs> I love fucking ABBA. I think they're, they're fucking I, amazing. I think that they are genius. They're clearly the greatest music group to come out of Eurovision. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like, I've I. I just threw on the 2022 ABBA documentary and just like had that going Mm. in the background. It's like very interesting to me to listen to these creative people, two couples, you know, two married couples who who got into music because they were just they would just like hang out and sing together. Mm -hmm. um, Talk about how they created really some of the most like perfect earworm pop songs and so mm-hmm. weird that call on like when 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 I hear the term like white culture I think ABBA in the best <laughs> way like it, it's pop music You're thinking that of call, Waterloo yeah like the, it's pop music Waterloo is a great example that calls uh-huh. on like this like deep like European musical tradition with the big like oh, classical almost Shostakovich sounding like piano mm-hmm. chords and this like wonderful like almost folky melodies 
like it's great stuff. I love doing that. Or like uh, another thing that I had here is just uh, a conversation with um, David Milch, the TV writer who created Deadwood mm-hmm. and wrote for Hill Street Blues and, and and created NYPD Blue. Just him talking about uh, you know his creative process. Anybody talking about like their their creative process? Yeah. Um, with another person who is like steeped in mm-hmm. the particular history of whatever space that that, that creative person uh, applies their trade in is I'll listen to that. I'll listen to that conversation 10 times out of 10. It doesn't even have to be anything that I particularly know how yeah. to do. It could be oh, like woodworking or something. And I just yeah. find that oh, yeah, really I do enjoyable. Love a good, like slow, like woodworking trains. Yeah. I listen to a lot of stuff like that, but you know, what I have to share. Okay. So I think you're right. I think that is the the key. And I was lucky enough many years ago now one of the set visits that I did when I when that was still a thing pre-COVID, I visited the set of the first series of what we do in the shadows. And it was in Toronto and it was freezing cold. And we got to go to the X mansion where they were filming a big thing. But that was one of the most mind-blowing, like fly on the wall experiences. Cause you're there as press, and that was a very lax set. So yeah. I just got to spend, I have so many unbelievable memories of just like a guy who was creating like a non-toxic gel for setting himself on fire. (laughs) And he just talked to us about it for like 30 minutes and kept just setting himself on fire. And he was like a Viking. And it was also 12 women on the set visit, which you never get, which was incredible. Uh, The guy who was doing all the wire work stunts, he just came onto the coach where we were chilling outside and gave like a whole speech on all these different ways that they were using wireworks. We had the guy who was making the fake vomit. It was one of the set visits that I've been on that had the most amount of specific knowledge base. The set dresser, the person whose job it was to go to like the charity shops and buy old vintage stuff that would look like it fit into a vampire's house in New Jersey. That was a really mind-blowing time because it was like getting to be a fly on the wall and hear the ins and outs of how things got made. And it also, this was probably six years ago now or something, but it kind of blew my mind and opened my mind to just how many different jobs there are in filmmaking and how much I wished as a kid I'd have known that your job could be like dressing the set or your job could be like somebody, you know, you're just some cool guy in overalls and you're like hammering together like a shelf that goes on the set. Like that's like a dream. You don't, and, and that was very profound to me. And that was definitely the time that I felt most like, I know that that guy's just going around setting himself on fire, talking about that gel to anyone who's on the set because he's a genius. And like, so that was definitely the most fly on the wall experience. And honestly, it was amazing. Like, I think about that all the time. So I think I would like to be a fly on the wall more, actually. Chris, that was such a good question. A wonderful question. Like, I love it. If you have theories, passions, or quick questions you want to share, hit us up at xraycrooked.com. Instructions are in the show notes. That's it for us, Rosie. Any plugs? Plug, 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 yes, plug, plug, plug. I am going to plug a piece of mine that went up at IGN. Not my yes. Neutron piece, though that's great. I wrote a piece. I, I, I will say it this way. I have been working on a piece at IGN for four years or, a, about the boom and bust of the comic book industry. And I was delightfully surprised this weekend when my brilliant editor, Scott Kalora, reached out and was like, hey, I think it's time. Like, let, let's run it, you know. I'm really happy. It went up. It's 6,000 words. It has interviews with Tom McFarlane, Louise Simonson, 
Oh, Jim Lee on the record talking about image. Bob Layton, who really was an unbelievable source and gave some unbelievable yeah. numbers about Valiant, is probably the piece I'm proudest of. I want to turn it into a book or a TV show or something because there's just such a great story to be told there. But for now, you can read it on IGN and I'm super proud of it. Kevin Van Hook from Valiant also giving some great insight. And because it's ended up coming out this year there's also a great little chat with ryan skinner from pulp fiction which is my local comic shop in long beach about how there was actually like a mini boom and bust during covid which we knew oh, wow. you know as, wow. as collectors yeah, kind yeah. of there was this speculation boom but it hasn't quite turned into a bust but it's deflating so just if you like the ins and outs if you like business if you like numbers if you like louise simonson saying that they the only reason they did Death of Superman was because they were pissed off at DC and they just decided to kill him. You're going to love it because that's exactly what happened. <laughs> Catch the next episode Friday, August 11th for an all Superman and Lois Lane themed episode. Ooh, perfect timing. And you can watch full episodes of the podcast on YouTube. Also check out Twitter and XRV pod and our discord to hang out with a ton of cool fans. Five-star ratings, five-star reviews. We five, need them. Five, we got to have five. them. You got to give them to us. Here's one from JLove92. Open Apple for the first time for this review. This podcast is oh. like going back in time to watch anime and play video games with friends after school. Perfect. That's it. I, that's, that's all we're we, going we, for. We peaked. We literally Yeah, that's peaked. all we're going for. Dream. Thank you. Thank you, JLove92. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin and executive produced by me, Jason Concepcion. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Video production by Delon Villanueva and Rachel Gajewski. Social media by Ewa Okalati and Caroline Dunphy. Thank you to Brian Vasquez for our theme music. See you next time. Whether you're a diehard comics fan or just getting into them, you're going to love Comic Sans. Comic Sans is a podcast about comics for those who are sans knowledge. Join Jan, a comic book reader, writer, and lover, and Nat, who knows absolutely nothing about comics. Each episode, Jan introduces Nat to one of their favorite comics, like the Sandman Saga and Lore Olympus, and shares what makes that comic special. And then Nat gives his thoughts on the comic, which only sometimes causes Ian to freak out. But it's worth it every time. It's a podcast that comic lovers, haters, and undecideders alike can enjoy. And you can binge the first season, including bonus episodes on Across the Spider-Verse and Comic-Con right now. Find Comic Sans on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.